Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the opportunity that we have now to turn our attention to your truth, and I pray that we would not only hear it, but that we would understand it, and that we would believe it, that we would apply it, and that we would obey it. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Last week, we began a three-part series looking at the application of truth to the Christian life. And we said that that series could really be called godly ambition. You see, ambition in and of itself is not sinful. Ambition in and of itself can be something that is redeemed for good purposes, especially if the ambition is to live a life that is honoring to our Lord and Savior. And that's what Paul is telling the believers in Rome how to do when he writes that section in Romans chapter 12, uh, really beginning in verse 9 all the way down through verse 21. And I told you last week that we're really looking at this as how do we function within the church, within the world, and towards our enemies. And I must confess that as I studied it a little bit more this week, I realized that even the section that we're looking at today has to do with people within the church. And so we'll continue to ask ourselves, how is it that we are to function as believers to honor Christ in our relationships within the body of Christ? And that, of course, will spill out into our relationships in the world. Now, last week, just to review, we said it begins with humility. Humility is really the basis for everything in the Christian life. If you are humble, then you are like the Lord. If you are humble, then you are in a position for him to exalt you. Now, the second word was honor. Honor is the very basis upon which we build our relationships. We honor one another. In fact, he says, you need to go out of your way to show honor. If, if you're going to be competitive in something, be competitive in showing honor. The third word was hope. And everything that we do in this life is based on the hope that we have of the glory of the return of Christ. Whatever sacrifices we make here are nothing compared to the glory that awaits. And the last word was hospitality. Uh, that was the love we show to strangers. And the effort that we make to, to go out of our way to show hospitality and to turn a stranger into a guest. Well, that's really who we are. But what about what we do? Paul now transitions from who we are to what we do. Now, there are really only three verses to look at, but five points. Uh, there's going to be one in verse 14, one in verse 15, and three in verse 16. And if you could, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and if you have one with you, follow along as I read, because this is the section of Scripture that we're going to be focusing our attention on this morning. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Five particular admonitions there, five encouragements, five statements, if you were, that define the very nature and characteristic of what a Christian is. 
Uh, these are the sort of godly ambitions that we can be about. These are the goals that we can set. As we look into yet another new year, these are the ambitions that any godly believer can have because it will make them more like Christ. And, and the first one is that we learn how to bless. We said in verse 14, bless. Now, we are not just to bless in general because it's easy to bless your friends. In fact, the passage that we just read from the passage in the Gospels where Jesus says that is proof of it. He says in Matthew 5 that it's very easy to bless your friends and to love the people who love you. Even unbelievers do that. But the word here, bless, the word to wish well, based on really a word to give thanks, is a word that is directed not to the people who you like, not to the people who are your friends, not your family, but actually to those who persecute you. It's, it's a word that means to chase after you, to hunt you down. Bless the people that are hunting you down. And they're not hunting you down to give you a gift and do something nice for you. They're, they're hunting you down to persecute you. They're hunting you down to harm you. And Paul writes to these Roman believers who are in the very epicenter of the city of the world at that point, and he says, even within your context there, as you are persecuted by people for your faith, you respond by blessing them. You bless those who persecute you. And as if to almost anticipate our objection, he repeats it. He said, yes, you did not hear me incorrectly. I said bless. You bless the ones who persecute you. And lest you think that blessing can be a blessing somewhere along the lines of, oh Lord, bless this person by making them an object of your wrath that would put your glory on display. Bless this person with some imprecatory psalm that you pull out from the Old Testament asking the Lord to shatter their teeth. No, it is not that kind of blessing, he says. You bless in an untainted, undiluted, unhypocritical kind of blessing. You literally wish them well, and you do not curse them. You don't curse them. Now, you might find it interesting, but in the New Testament, the word curse appears only a few times. And the most vivid example of what it means to curse comes from Jesus. Jesus cursed. He did. Some of you have that look on your face like, okay, prove it. In Luke 11, Jesus is walking with his disciples and notices a fig tree off in the distance. And he walks over to the fig tree in order to get some figs because he's hungry. And yet, because it's not the season for figs, there are no figs on the tree, and Jesus curses the fig tree. Later on, when they return and the fig tree is all withered, Peter remembers the fact that Jesus went and said what he said, and he calls what he said a curse. Jesus goes up to that tree, and because there's no fruit on it, he says, may you never bear fruit for anybody. You see, it's not using foul language, it's not calling somebody a bad name. It is wishing an unfruitfulness, a uselessness upon somebody. And so Paul says that when you are persecuted by people, you don't turn around and ask that God would make them useless and fruitless and destroy them. Instead, you bless them. You actually give thanks for them. You say, God is using you in my life for a certain purpose. I can bless you. Now again, like I said, I thought this was really only within the world, but it happens even within believers sometimes. Even believers can persecute you. Even believers can hunt you down. Even believers can wish that things don't go well for you. What do you do in a situation like that? You simply bless them. 
As much as it's in your power to do so, you remain in a spirit of fellowship with them, cooperation with them. You don't try to harm them or undermine them. You simply say, if this is God's will, then may it be. I don't wish you any harm. You go on your way. I'm not going to pursue you and try to destroy you. That's the first point. We are to be those who bless. Number two. You feel that? Feel that sense of being uncomfortable for me? Feel a little bit of embarrassment for me? Like, oh no, he's forgot his second point. This is really awkward. I hope it ends soon. Could somebody please just tell him what it is? You're engaging with me in my discomfort. You're engaging with me in the awkwardness of that moment. And in the same way, Paul says that you are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The second point is engage. The second point is to be with people in the midst of their joy and in the midst of their suffering. Now, it's beautiful to consider what it's like to rejoice with people. You say, great, that just means that when someone's having a party, I join. I love when people are rejoicing. It's always great to be invited to a celebration. But there's another side to this. It means rejoicing with people even when you might be tempted to be jealous of their joy. Can you rejoice with somebody when they got what you wanted? Can you rejoice with somebody when they got the promotion? Rejoice with somebody when they get to go on the vacation? Rejoice with somebody when when their family seems to be going the way you wish your family was going? Can you really rejoice with them when everything that is going on in their lives or the things you wish were going on with your life and for some reason God isn't giving it to you but instead He's giving it to them? I mean, it's easy to just join the party, but it's very difficult at times to rejoice with somebody when deep in your heart you're tempted to be jealous or to be envious. Jealousy says, I want what you want, what you have. Envy says, I wish you didn't have what you have. Jealousy says, I wish that I had what you had. Envy says, I wish you don't have what you have. In fact, if I could do something to take away what you've got and which is giving you all this joy, it would make me feel better because misery loves company. But he says to them, I want you to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but also to weep with those who weep. There's that beautiful poem that was written by Ella Wilcox called Solitude. You're probably familiar with it. It begins, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. For the sad old earth has, must borrow its mirth, but has trouble enough of its own. Sing and the hills will answer. Sigh, it is lost on the air. The echoes abound with a joyful sound, but shrink from voicing care. Rejoice and men will seek you. Grieve and they turn and go. They want full measure of all your pleasure but they do not need your woe. Be sad, or be glad, and your friends are many. Be sad, and you lose them all. There are none to decline your nectared wine, but alone you must drink life's gall. Feast in your halls are crowded, fast, and the world goes by. Succeed and give, and it helps you live, but no man can help you die. 
There is room in the halls of pleasure for a large and lordly train, but one by one we must all file on through the narrow aisles of pain. Is that true? Did Ms. Wilcox get it right? Do we all have to move through the aisles of pain alone? Paul's telling us no. Paul's telling us that God in his mercy has created something called church. And the church is the place where believers can come together in order to bear one another's burdens. To rejoice openly and completely and without hypocrisy when things go well for you. And then to come alongside you and enter into that very painful grief that you are enduring and endure it with you. There is no greater picture of this than our Lord Jesus Christ because we know from what happened with Him in Luke chapter 11 with Mary and Martha that He was able to be with people in a way that ministered to them. He is the one who was able to engage with Mary and be able to weep with her because she was weeping. He didn't rebuke her for her tears. He, he didn't tell her you're being immature. He didn't say, what's the matter? Don't you believe Instead, he was able to go alongside her and with her and beside her and, and to weep with her. He entered into that. He, he was the perfect example of somebody who knows how to weep with those who weep. He also was able to rejoice. In fact, the Pharisees were so critical of him. And at one point, he derides them and essentially mocks them. And he, he says to them, you know, when John the Baptist came, and he was all by himself, and he wouldn't drink wine or enjoy good fellowship. You said he had a demon. And yet the Son of Man comes, and, and he eats, and he drinks wine, and he enjoys fellowship. And you say that he's immoral. You see, Jesus said, you, you're just going to judge me no matter what. I can't win. But the reality is, I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice, and I'm going to weep with those who weep. And if you're looking for a starting place on, on how to help people who are weeping, let me encourage you to start with your eschatology. You know, in our culture, it seems to be that people want to comfort one another with this hope that God will never really cause you to suffer, that you'll be able to escape that, that, that somehow you won't have to go through persecution, you won't have to go through suffering, that, that it's somehow you're right, you are entitled to it as an American evangelical in a conservative church to never really experience any kind of suffering the way they do anywhere else in the world. And yet the reality is we're not promised that at all. The better way to look at it is to say that in the end, God will make all things new. Is to acknowledge the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. To acknowledge how ruined it is by sin. To acknowledge that in the same way that Jesus cursed the fig tree, He also cursed the entire earth. Everything. Every relationship. Every situation is tainted by sin and by the curse. And when He came to earth, as we celebrated just this last season, He came on a mission to die in order that He might rise again and demonstrate what is made new in the body and will one day be made new in the earth. You see, He was able to proclaim to us a vivid living example of what Sam, Frodo's gardener, the hobbit, said when he said that in the end all that is sad will be made untrue 
You'll be able to look back in the end and see everything that happened that made you sad and actually see it through the lens of eternity and glorify God for it. There's a really remarkable scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where this is explained. And if you haven't read the book, I would recommend that you do. It's not about divorce. The subtitle is A Fantastic Bus Ride from Hell to Heaven, A Round Trip for Some but Not for Others. And in it, one of the characters is describing this very reality. The very reality that you must weep with those who weep, not not just by allowing them to drag you down into sorrow, but by bringing them truth. And the truth is not that it's necessarily going to get better in this life. The truth is that God is going to use this for his glory, and in the end, they will be thankful for it. One of the characters tells a visitor that this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, the future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me but have this, and I will take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already confirms to his badness and, his, and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost we were always in hell, and both will speak truly. You see, this earth is a heaven for believers, because even the hell you endure will be seen for the glory that it is when Christ returns. And this earth is a hell for unbelievers, because even the joy that they have in this earth will be reversed into a judging condemnation of their rejection of the goodness of God as they suffer forever and eternity. So when we enter into the the joys and the sorrows of the people that we are ministering to, may we do it with a grand view of the glory of God in everything and His ultimate promise to come and to redeem and to restore and to bring to full consummation everything that He intended to do from before the foundation of the world. May we be those who bless. May we be those who engage. Thirdly, and this is there in verse 16, may we be those who cooperate. Now, I want to show you that there are three particular points here in this one verse, and they all center around one family of Greek words that has to do with the mind. And so in the first case, we're going to have the same mind. In the second case, we're not going to have an elevated mind. In the third case, we're not going to have a self-centered mind. But it's always about the mind. It's about how you think. And so he says there at the beginning of verse 16 that, that you need to essentially be prepared in all things to have harmony with all people. Now, let's be clear. Harmony is a great word here because harmony is 
the blending together of different voices. Some people think that harmony is just unity and that unity is just unison and that the only time people get together is if everybody thinks exactly the same way. However, if we were to gather together here on a Sunday morning and everybody only sang the same part over and over again, there wouldn't be the blending of harmony. Unison is not unity. And so, Paul says, I want you to have the same mind. I want you to think the same as the people around you, but it doesn't mean that you're identical. In fact, there can be some unity that builds around people who think identically, but it's usually very dangerous. In my observation, there are actually very unified groups of people, but I don't believe that they're glorifying God, even some churches. For example, I'll give you three things that unify people, but that aren't healthy. Number one is authority. Uh, You can have people that work very well together and they're very unified because they are all subject to and intimidated by and afraid of the same authority. Somebody has been placed over them or a group of people have been placed over them and they make all the decisions and they make all the rules and they drive you into conformity because of your fear of their authority. Totalitarian rule. That's not real unity. The second one is celebrity. Now, there are some who will follow uh, whatever a particular man or woman says. Whatever that person says, that's what they believe. And they've allowed that person to stand basically in between God, His Word, and them, and whatever they say, however they interpret it, whatever they tell you to do, whatever cause they want you to join, we should do it because they do it because they're our person. The celebrity. That's a dangerous form of unity. That's not a church, that's a cult. If everybody just thinks what everybody else thinks and they all do whatever they're told to think, that is not what Paul has in mind when he writes to these believers. The the third one is morality. You might find it odd that I would say that, but by morality, I mean the external morality, not genuine heart change, just conformity to a set of legalistic external rules, and all that really matters is how long your hair is or how long your skirt is, and that's all that really matters, and you could fit into that group because you have the same moral standards. That is not Christian harmony. So Paul here is not talking about authority, celebrity, or even morality. What he is talking about is what undoes all of those things, and I would argue the first one is humility. Real harmony comes from humility. When he says here to have the same mind, or that word harmony, what what, what he is saying here is the same thing as we are told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and that is to have the same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus in his humility. Uh, It's the same word that he uses to describe what Iodia and Syntyche need to have. Remember he calls them out in Philippians 4, 2? These two women were bickering, they were disagreeing, And he's tired of listening to the reports about these two women who can't get along in the church. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes a letter to the Philippian believers and and now for all eternity, codified in the eternal Word of God, is this rebuke to these two grumbling women. Let that be a warning to all the grumbling women in here and grumbling men. Paul says to to them, listen, the two of you, you need to have the same mind, same idea, same word, be in harmony. And what I love about this is Paul doesn't pick a winner. He doesn't say, Iodia, you know Siddiqui's right, so just repent and everything will be fine. 
Syntyche, you know that Yodia is the more mature Christian, so go with her and do what she says, and everything will be fine. He says, I don't care who's right and who's wrong. What you need to learn to do is be in harmony with one another. You've got to literally cooperate. You've got to co-live, cohabitate, co-work. Oftentimes translated in our English New Testament with the word co beside it. You do this thing together. That's what harmony looks like. Doing things together with people who do not necessarily agree with you, look like you, talk with you, like you, act like you, have the same moral standards as you. Understanding that you're bound together with something far greater than any of that, which is the Holy Spirit, which holds you together. Learn how to cooperate. Number four is fellowship. You've got to learn how to fellowship with one another. Real, true fellowship. So, not only are you to bless the people who persecute you, not only are you to rejoice with somebody, even though they might have something you wish you had, not only do you weep with those people who are weeping by reminding them that even this will be for God's own glory and your ultimate joy one day when He returns to make all things right, not only do you cooperate with everybody in this harmonious mindset, but you also learn how to fellowship. And the one thing that will destroy cooperation and destroy fellowship is not to have the same mind, but to have a haughty mind. That's what he says in the next part of the verse. He says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be arrogant and conceited. This word for haughty, again, same word family as harmony, but instead of being like-minded, you are high-minded. Everybody's below you. You look down on them because you're so superior. You're smarter. You're more godly. You're cooler. You've got more followers. You're prettier. You're better. And they're down there. You're up here. They're down there. Why would I go down there to be with them? I'll just wait to see if one day God blesses them adequately to bring them up here to be with me. Then we'll experience fellowship. He says, no. Now, you want to have the right mind? Have a mind that's able to fellowship with people. And by the way, you're only better than them because you think you're better than them, not because you are better than them. Pride is one of the leading indicators of ignorance because proud people actually really believe they are better. He says, I don't want you to be like that. You need to be humble enough to fellowship with everybody, even the lowly. The word lowly there, again, it's not used that very often in the New Testament, uh, but it is used of those who are meek and even those who are depressed. May we not be a church or a group of believers that avoids the people that are, are hard to be around because it's draining, because it's difficult to be with them in their lowly state. Maybe they're poor. Maybe they're discouraged. Maybe they're weak. Maybe they're idle. Maybe they're faint-hearted. Paul says, be patient with all of those people. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they're going through a trial. It's not necessarily pleasant and uplifting all the time, but to have genuine Christian fellowship, it's a word, by the way, they get the word synagogue from, to, to come together means that you embrace people from not only every walk of life, but also every stage of life and every experience in life. And it's genuine I mean, there ought to be such a bizarre mix of people in this church that no one can quite figure out where we're going. 
You're not all conforming to one standard. You're not all exactly the same in how you do things. You're not all at the same place and the same level in society. And we say, no, the only thing that really binds us together is a love for Christ, a love for the truth, and a desire to simply humbly love and serve Him and show that love to other people. That's what real fellowship is going to look like. And he says here that not only are you supposed to be with those lowly people, but you're supposed to associate with them. It's literally a word that means to be carried away with them. You ever use that phrase, somebody gets carried away? Things are going really well, but then it just got carried away. This is the same idea here. You get in with these people such that you're willing to allow yourself to be carried away even with their struggles. You can't be high-minded and carried away by the struggles of the depressed. And remember, it doesn't mean carried away in the sense of you then also become depressed with them. That doesn't make depressed people feel better. Depressed people are not lifted up by realizing that they have spread their depression around like a virus. Depressed people, lonely people, sad people, instead are encouraged when you are willing to come down and sit with them like Job's friends did, maybe in silence, but with the knowledge that the truth you'll bring to bear on the situation, again, is the eschatological reality that one day Jesus will return to make all things right. And even this sadness, though very real, is a sadness that can be painted over with the reality of His return. And sometimes that's the most soothing balm you can possibly give to somebody, is your presence. There's nothing worse than suffering alone. It's hard enough what they're going through. Don't add isolation. So we bless, we engage, we cooperate, we fellowship. There's one more. We listen. Look at the last part of verse 16. We listen. If you think too highly of yourself, it will show up in several different ways, one of which is the fact that you will stop listening to people. He summarizes everything here in this argument by saying, never be wise in your own sight. I mentioned to you earlier that this word for mind surfaces over and over again. So in verse 16, the word harmony comes from that word for mind. The word haughty comes from that word mind. And the word wise comes from that word mind. He says, I don't want you to just be minding yourself putting everything in on you. The wisest man who ever lived has a lot to say about wisdom, and he said in Proverbs 1.5 that a wise person is one who's going to listen to instruction. The assumption is you're not wise yet. Don't get defeated. He just says you're not wise yet. Wisdom will come. Wisdom will come. But it won't come if every single time you're confronted with something that you disagree with, you assume that you are right and the person correcting you is wrong. He says, don't be the kind of person who is so focused in on yourself and your own mind and your own thinking that you have lost the ability to listen. Don't be like the foolish old king in Ecclesiastes who is no longer able to receive instruction. Ecclesiastes 4.13 says, it is better to be a poor, wise youth than to be an old, foolish king who can no longer take instruction. 
Oh God, spare us from old foolish kings, old foolish pastors, old foolish presidents, old foolish fathers, old foolish husbands. Spare us from the old foolish man and old foolish women for that matter as well. And instead, Give us men and women who can model the humility that says it's not about what I think, it's about what the Word of God says, and I'm willing at every age and every stage to receive it and to even be corrected. That is what it means to have a true godly ambition. So if you want to know what it's like for you to be able to frame up your goals for this year, let me recap it for you. Just from those first verses up through verse 16. We're going to look next week at what it means to take all of this and turn it towards those who are your enemies, towards those who hate you. But for now, we're going to stick it within the body, within the church, even here. And by the way, as I said, even here, there is, there is persecution sometimes. There are people who treat you badly. You've got to be willing to receive that and respond in a godly way and bless them instead. I suspect that this year is going to bring a mixture of experiences for you, just like it does every year. So be prepared now. It starts with our humility. And let us in all things be those who do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It comes together in the way we honor one another, where we go out of our way to honor each other instead of trying to get the honor that we think we deserve. We've got to model that hope, that hope in future glory, that hope in the return of Christ, when all that is wrong will be made right. We also need to be those who show hospitality. May it be that those who are strangers with us today will be guests by next week. And my prayer is that literally today, when you get up, when you get up to leave today, that you look around and you find somebody who is a stranger to you and you reach out and you greet them. I know some of you don't like to do that. Some of you resist having to talk to other people. Some of you like to encase yourself in your own little world like Shells upon the shore, as the song says. Others of you would go and greet anybody. Well, those of you who will greet anybody, the word on hospitality says you've got to go and seek out those to whom you must be hospitable. So those of you who are the outgoing, gregarious extroverts, you go find one of those introverts and make their world miserable. <laughs> and to the glory of God and for the good of the body. It's okay if they don't say much back to you. As long as you keep talking, everything will be fine. Just don't make them say anything. I mean, this is an answer to prayer for some of you. Just find someone who will just sit there and listen while you talk, 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 talk. But apart from that, there's also the practical way it fleshes out. So let's just remember what we said today. Number one, we've got to bless those who persecute you. You've got to bless them. Make it your point to bless them. If you don't know how to do this, practice it. Practice blessing the people who are nice to you so that when the people who are not nice to you come along, you at least have some ability to do this. Engage with people in their joys and in their sorrows. Learn how to really rejoice with somebody and mean it. When you say, I'm happy for you, really mean it. Don't just be like, oh, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> you got everything I was hoping to get. No. Make it a real happiness. And you know what? That takes some, that take, that takes some work. Because we're not by nature that way. That's a God-given, spirit-led response. Genuine joy in others' joy. And in their weeping, engage with them. Don't, don't avoid them. 
to join them in it, but do so with the reminder that all of this will work together for their good, for God's glory, and for their ultimate joy. And they really will, as Lewis put it in that book, look back on this and see that all of this was heaven, that somehow all that is sad will be made untrue. Fellowship with each other. Really engage with other people. Don't allow yourself to think that you're better than them. Make sure that when you cooperate within the church that it is done with a spirit of humbleness, that you don't think you're better than anyone else, and then listen. Listen to the people that correct you from time to time. Don't assume that everything that you believe or say or do is right. Learn to take correction. If we can do those things, if we can make that our goal for this coming year, this church will be transformed into a little piece of heaven. And people will come and they will realize that this is special, that you are different. And not just peculiar and weird, but that there's something inside of you that I don't have and I wish I had it. And that will be our avenue to give them the glorious hope of the gospel that whatever you see in us can be seen in you as well if you put your faith in Christ. You see, he fulfilled all of these things perfectly. He blessed perfectly. He engaged with people perfectly. He cooperated with others perfectly. He fellowshiped perfectly. And he listened, not because he had to get any kind of correction, but because he allowed in the questions and the answers and in the listening to people to hear their heart and be able to minister to them in such a perfect and profound way that it changed them forever. May the same be said of us for his glory and honor. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for our time together in your word and for these simple truths. May each one of them come together for us personally in a way that brings you glory. Make it clear that there is no way that we could do what we do or say what we say were it not for a power outside of ourselves that has come into us to change us and conform us into the likeness of your Son. Father, we thank you for this precious church. We lift up those who are not with us today because of illness. We know many, many are sick. And many are perhaps choosing not to be with us in person because of that. For some, it's possibly COVID. For others, just the flu that's going around. But either way, it's clearly something that is affecting our numbers. And so we just pray, Father, that you would comfort those who are sick, that you would give us the heart's desire to serve them in whatever practical ways we can. Thank you for so many that have stepped up to help in terms of providing food and other ministry. May we go out of our way to look for opportunities to show honor to those who are in need, to those, frankly, who are lowly, who are in a position of needing help. We also take a moment this morning to lift up to you and ask that you would comfort our brothers and sisters from Maranatha Chapel. Lord, with the death of their pastor, Ray Bentley, this week, I just pray that you would comfort them as they are no doubt reeling from this loss. I pray you would give great wisdom to those leaders as they seek to shepherd that church through this devastating time. 
And for those in our congregation who may know some in that congregation, may today be the day where we consider how we might put into practice the very things that you've instructed us to do here in Romans 12. That we might, in some way, bring a level of comfort to those who are suffering. Father, as we turn our attention to this new year, we pray that all of our goals would be consistent with your truth and your word and your spirit, that all of our ambitions would be godly, that you would humble us when you don't allow us to meet some of the objectives that we had by reminding us that our ways are not your ways and our thoughts are not your thoughts. And so comfort us, I pray, that whatever is, is because of your divine providence. And it will always work together for our good and for your glory. All God's people said, Amen.